Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Adnan Shafi, and I'm going to be your host today. We have a very special guest with us, Mr. Ali Abdi, who is a community organizer and a lover of sports as well. So would you just like to briefly introduce yourself and tell us a little about what you do? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you, Adnan, uh, for having me on your podcast. And in fact, I wear lots of different hats. Uh, community organizer is just a small part of what I do, although it's a big part of my life because I really enjoy the work I do as a community organizer, which essentially is about bringing communities together, developing the capacity of leaders to take action uh, on things that are really important, on issues that they really feel strongly about. Uh, so get ordinary people uh, to act together for social justice <coughs> and a common good. Uh, but yeah, in terms of you know the most common question uh, I get asked is Ali. So what do you do? <laughs> I've got my hands involved in lots of things and activities mm -hmm. and projects. Uh, you know, I, I'm often a go-to person for particular things. So I'm a bit of a guru. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in youth and community work, uh, with a particular emphasis and focus on um, black and minority ethnic communities. Mm. Uh, I, I myself are from the Somali community here in Cardiff which goes back over 150 years. I've got a big, strong history here in Cardiff. Uh, and yeah, a lot of my work is also concentrated in Cardiff South, where you'll find communities uh, from, like I mentioned, from Somalia, Somaliland, mm. from the Yemen, from the Caribbean, from our from South Asian communities like Pakistan, Bangladesh, India, uh, and also you know, real strong Welsh, white Welsh communities too. Uh, yeah, so yeah, that's a little bit about me. I'm a lover of sports. A big fan of football. I love Man United. Although at this current moment in time, uh, yeah. you know, it's not the best time yeah. to be involved with Man United. <laughs> you know, the wheels are falling off. Yeah. Ollie's uh, car, I think, and uh, I think we'll be back. You know, in the words of Arnold Schwarzenegger, "Hasta la vista." Hasta la vista, baby. We'll, yeah. we'll be back. Yeah, we shall be back. Absolutely. So yeah, really glad to be here at Land, and uh, to, uh, yeah, please let's uh, see where we go with this podcast today. Yeah, thank you so much, first of all, for being here. Uh, apologies to everyone. Um, uh, this there was a bit of technicalities, as most of you might know. There is a current storm that's hitting the UK, Big so storm. it's like it's not like mobility is something that's like easily favored in such conditions. So uh, sorry, just kindly allow us for the the I think it was seventeen minute delay, but yes, <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it, it's kind it, of a absolutely. It's, it's, not, a, it's not black hat time. It's not African time. <laughs> it's not Somali. It's not Somali time. It's not Somali time. <laughs> Honestly, you know, storm yeah. Sierra. It's, it's a real thing, it's guys. Real Just thing. go on Twitter, search hashtag Storm Sierra. That's more or less the reason why um, our guest was struggling to get in at such a late it time. Was, it was tough. Yeah, it was tough. You know, battling the yeah. storms. You know, <laughs> I'm proud to be here. Yeah, thank I'm, you I so made much. it. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. So um, let's, let's get right into it. Um, you said that you've done a lot of community work, and that's actually quite interesting for me. And as someone who is also quite passionate about the youth getting involved in community, I'd like to just start off with my first question, which is, do you think that community cohesion and community change and transformation is more of a top-down process where you have one, let's say, inspirational story that comes out from somewhere and then that prompts other people in the community to get involved and change their communities? Is it a top-down sort of dynamic or is it more like bottom-up where you, you find someone uh, or a couple of individuals doing something in their daily life to change the community and that eventually becomes a domino effect that kind of snowballs into um, community change. What do you think? Yeah, no, really good question. And I think historically, definitely was, there was a lot of top-down, uh, we know what's best, and mm. this is what community cohesion is for the people who you know, had the funding, <laughs> who had the power to make things happen. But I think uh, more recently, last couple of years particularly, where uh, resources have been tough, where communities start to stand up, uh, we're beginning to be listened to now and we, you know, you can run community cohesion or do anything to do with community cohesion without having local people involved mm. uh, and their buy-in. I think it's really important that, uh, you know, when we talk about community cohesion, that you get the buy-in of those communities you're trying to engage mm. in, the, in, the, in the process. I think definitely historically, like I've been involved in youth and community work for the past, I'll be honest, about 15 years and I think I've seen where historically people have just had money and funding and coming mm. to the community and said, hey guys, we want to run some activities, you know, we'd love to have, you know, 
know, South Asians, we'd have to have some black African communities and let's just make it happen. You know, there's no lasting legacy and things like this. Mm. You, know, you generally need to uh, build those relationships and get in to those communities, identify who the go-to people are. You know, you can't just have uh, one person often representing a particular community. Mm. Uh, and the biggest frustration you often find in some of these communities is that that's not my spokesman. Mm. You know, you'll find people yeah. from various backgrounds saying, so you've got him representing uh, say the Pakistani community. That's not my spokesman. Mm. He's not from my. He's not my from my uh, ends or my tribe or my <laughs> caste. So you really have to be careful in how we uh, engage with these communities. Which is which is why food community organizing and my community organizing hat uh, is all about building relationships and lasting relationships uh, and understanding actually what is it that makes those people tick. You know what's their self interest. Go there and engage with other communities, bring them together, and only then, as an alliance, together can they start making a difference. Mm. Uh, and then you could actually, then you have the power to shift money, resources, uh, projects, and activities. But you really, yeah. generally, yeah, have to get that buy-in. So yeah, very much grassroots, bottom-up, real relationship building to make a difference where they, where it's needed. Yeah, I, I definitely agree, and I think. The UK, although I haven't really lived here for long, I've, I've had the, the opportunity of studying your electoral system as well. And uh, it's more biased towards one candidate winning compared to, um, for example, you having a more representative um, group of people that are entering parliament. It's basically winner takes all kind of elections here in the UK. So it's a simple majority. You might have a minority of Somalis that account for 2% of the population. Therefore, they only really have 2% of the vote. That's not going to put a winning candidate on, on the ballot, definitely. So I'd say you'd need that dynamic of bottom-up, um, I'd say, yeah, bottom-up change, but also you need people who are willing to, to speak out. And as yeah. you said, you need to really get to know people within the community. Otherwise, who are you really serving? Are you serving yourself or the community? Absolutely. So I'd say even in terms of entrepreneurship, and which is, I think, we're going to segue into that uh, quite briefly, I'd say um, there's two two things perhaps I'd like perhaps I'd like you to comment on. Like um, you've talked about, I mean I've talked about entrepreneurship quite a lot on the podcast, right? Yeah. And a lot of people think of it as a money making process, and it's a very self centered uh, process of change. But what's what's your opinion? Because I, I definitely identify you as a social entrepreneur. What's your opinion on that? Yeah. So so the question is, um, so how exactly would you define? Um, social entrepreneurship and compare it to other forms of more conventional entrepreneurship. Yeah, do you know what? Valid? Yeah, yeah, do you know what? I get excited about the term, to be honest, social enterprises, mm -hmm. social entrepreneurs, because I think it definitely does give back uh, into the community. Uh, and in fact, I've been involved in various social enterprises. Uh, some have taken off and done some great work, continue to do some work. Others have, you know, lasted maybe a year, two years, and like, you know, the people who were uh, involved in it got, you know, busy or had other things going on and they've left it but I think there's definitely room for more uh, social entrepreneurs to, 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 to be established uh, to be there's a, there's a real market there for you know community interest organizations who are similar to social enterprises and I think the real difference social enterprises can make to society is you know in terms of you know if they are able to sell activities or resources or their service mm. that money gets reinvested back into uh, the very the very same service or project they're engaged with so I mean that's what I particularly enjoy and like about the term social enterprise and I think there's a real opportunity here in Cardiff uh, and with the, with our community particularly because there's a lot of social entrepreneurs there people who are socially active to really look at actually how they can start establishing it and these can be sports clubs these mm. can be social clubs uh, cafes you know and there are lots of different models of social enterprise and I think all of them are valid and all of them in some shape or form are actually taking place but without any formal recognition of it being a social mm. enterprise so I think there's a real opportunity to formalise it show people actually actually you know that you can actually uh, uh, you know make money for the project and for um, the the community that you're working with too uh, because it gets reinvested so that can be in training that can be in you know buying more things to do more so yeah a whole host of things really yeah and no, I think I, I definitely see where you're coming from and um, I guess perhaps in terms of social entrepreneurs um, a lot of the listeners uh, I'd just like you to also get this point that yeah social entrepreneurship is also a key building block for community because a lot of people might not realize it but 
you know, um, for example, I'll give a very Nairobi-centric uh, sort of example. You know, if you're if you're in like Ushago, which Ushago is basically like you know where you visit your grandma or your grandpa. Yes. So basically, if you in that sort of area, part of that community is going to the kiosk to buy milk, like mm. literally a small shop. It's not really like a little or like a Tesco, but part of that community building process is that person starting up that shop, and it's not just about the profit. It's about you providing a service to a community. And people valuing that in a certain way because that's just the way the world works. So I definitely, I think it's a huge important thing. And um, I guess a lot of people, however, they do overestimate the capabilities of entrepreneurship. And um, my question would then be, um, do you think that, for example, in a lot of African states, people argue that the government is simply deficient, right? And it's corrupt and it's not providing enough for the people. Do you think that entrepreneurship can provide a sufficient sub- substitute for government functions in certain areas. Absolutely, I think so. And I think more and more there are international NGOs who have money and funding uh, that want to go away from giving it to governments. Mm. So if there are organizations who establish themselves as, uh, as social enterprises and have got all the processes in place as a legitimate social enterprise in terms of good governance, uh, you know their website is up to date. They have a you know good uh, committee structure. They're transparent online with their uh, who's in their organisation. They've got a good gender balance. I guarantee, more than likely, some of these international NGOs will give them some of the resources that they would have gave the government because they're now a viable option because they have the capacity. So I definitely would urge lots of mm. our youth. Uh, in, in East Africa, in Somaliland, Kenya, yeah. wherever they may be, to really explore definitely the, the, the social enterprise model, uh, establish, get a website mm. designed, register the organization in country. You know, it doesn't cost much, in fact, to do a red to register an organization uh, mm. in some of these countries that you mentioned. But then put yourself on the radar, get your social media presence sorted. You know, let NG- international NGOs uh, be attracted to your work. Sometimes you don't even need to contact them. If you're doing some fantastic work, the moment they search, uh, so if you do around work around water, and uh, water, say, uh, uh, at safety, or you talk, you do a work around, uh, you know, yeah. water purification, the moment they type in water purification, East Africa, or Somaliland, or Kenya, you should be at the top. And the way you're going to be at the top is do great work, do some uh, uh, voluntary engagement mm. in, the, in the first instance, uh, write up those reports, you know, put it online, uh, put it on your socials, you know, get, make life easy for some of these international NGOs to find you, uh, but also you go looking for them too. Mm. Uh, and some of them, uh, like I said, are working in, in neighboring countries uh, and maybe they don't know about you. So go put yourself on their radar, find out mm. when they got seminars or openings of applications uh, and present to them what you've, yeah. what, what, what you've done. So I think, yeah, definitely uh, social enterprises are, are a new age of development uh, yeah. for, for, for many parts of, of Africa and East Africa. And yeah, if they can rise to the challenge, they're not working against the government, but they're working with the government by doing things which the government cannot do. Because you know there are some government institutions which actually mm. haven't got the capacity, sadly, uh, and then if they are given those resources, won't spend it effectively. So uh, as as young people, as students, as uh, as uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, change activists, go and seek to do it yourself, uh, because you know as as well as anybody else what it takes to do that. Yeah, I mean, I'd just like to to perhaps address one thing that you talked about, and you said that one main aspect of one main aspect of of charity or uh, charity-based organizations or social enterprises is getting known. And I want to emphasize to people that just like the famous economic saying of, you know, you have uh, unlimited wants and you have limited resources. That's exactly how it functions in the world of NGOs because as far as the the person with, let's say, a million dollars wants to give uh, all of that out to a certain company, eventually that person is faced with choice. So uh, a lot of people don't seem to realize that there is a competitive dimension to non-governmental organization and their work. And which is why I say that you need to have a high social media presence to be able to establish a good foundation, to be able to be in a position to receive funding. And a lot of people have underestimated the idea of things such as TikTok, right? And it's a new new social media 
um, application, which came out about a year ago. Yeah. Um, and people really underestimated the power of it. But I myself, right, have have posted a couple of times. I try to post daily, uh, communicate about the podcast. Sometimes I just do jokes, or like based around you know uh, the youth and all that stuff. But people underestimate the value of that because if I can get 500,000 views, which actually did happen okay. on one of my videos, wow. and I only have 2,000 followers, that tells you that TikTok is probably the place, place to be, yes. right? Because the organic reach is high. Somewhere like LinkedIn is somewhere you need to dominate. Yes. Um, so in your experience, I guess, uh, what has been your experience with social media in, in your field? And do you feel like it's that non-gov- non-governmental organizations need to adopt a large or like a strong foundation for social media? Yeah, I think so. And I think also, I don't know, I, I, we mentioned non-governmental, non-governmental organizations go ahead and do that, but actually, ultimately, we also have um, uh, our government institutions who are not very well equipped at using mm. social media, right? So I think also we have to support uh, our leaders uh, and our ministries as well. Uh, and, and, I, and I know sometimes there's clashes, but ultimately, you know, if you, if you have the same love for developing your country <coughs> and making it a success, you know, you really need to also recognize where things are not going so well mm. so if you're really if you're interested in a particular area go and seek out that ministry uh, go build relationships with them you know uh, once you've got that relationship with them and they can see that you're uh, honest and transparent and you want good for the country too they'll endorse you that endorsement you can put on your mm. website that photo with the minister uh, the, the dg the director general can go a long way on your uh, social media streams too but at the same time you know if you're not uh, adding value to the ministry mm. that your area of expert area of expertise is looking to uh, do, do you know make better in the country then you really haven't moved anything on because ultimately they're the ones who are going to be doing the plan for the nation uh, you know the the reports on the impact of what your work is doing so you very much need to you know strengthen if there isn't if there if, if, if the relationship is weak uh, and if there isn't a relationship you need to go and start to develop it because because you know if they if they if they haven't tweeted for a long time if they haven't got put any updates on their facebook for a long time that's also a reflection of you uh, as, as as somebody who is uh, uh, interested in doing work in so in, in in that particular region or that particular area of expertise so yeah you know rise above um, sometimes the discrepancies the, mm. the, the the negative things that are holding you back and just see if you can make a difference with them. And I'll be honest, some of them will open their arms up to you because uh, they all want the same end result. Yeah, um, that's actually a very interesting point that you've highlighted because um, a lot of youth, um, as we've started to see, especially in this election, um, the, the UK election, and uh, generally around the world, as social media has become more popular, uh, we're starting to see the youth become um, a chess piece in this sort of sense in the game of politics, right? Uh, so you have, in this sense, like uh, especially in Africa, a large age gap between the leaders and the people that they're serving, right? Uh, so this is a bit of a polarizing question, yeah. uh, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Go ahead. Uh, but uh, do you believe that if you had a choice, actually, would you have the younger people in charge or in power or would you have someone that's older but has more experience in power or do you recommend that perhaps these roles stay the same and we improve our cohesion and communication within the community yeah so honestly a very good question uh, and, and i look at this question and i look at the country uh, in somaliland where uh, i'm from and where my family are from and we have we got a leader in our country who is in his 80s um, we have a, a ministers who I think the youngest is uh, this year I think because this term of this minister, this presidential term we actually had a, quite a few young guys uh, young ministers right but ultimately I think uh, who's anyway so yeah so they're about 25 uh, which is great good rate good age but again I would think the average age is still around 60 right which is a Tough. which is a huge problem. Tough. When, uh, when where our population is 3.5 million, uh, 50% of that population is under 30. So we've got a huge uh, youth population who, if we don't get a grip on engaging and bring it into uh, uh, employment, bring it into training, we're going to lose them. And what I mean we're going to lose them is there's, you know, the, the rise of social media has shown also 
the lure of other countries, the appetite to want to uh, earn quick cash, borrow money, mm. uh, escape to want to have a better life in Europe and the rest of the world, mm. uh, which is often a fake, a fake uh, uh, perspective, a fake vision mm. put on, you know, to, to lure people into, you know, spending tens of thousands of pounds because actually these places where they're looking to go add uh, as easy and as uh, fruitious as they as they as they think it should, as they think it is, mm. uh, and I think yes, it probably was. Go back 10, 15 years ago. I think you know anybody who came from uh, East Africa or was a refugee from Africa to to, to Britain would definitely have found uh, you know a good asylum, uh, you know three four years down the line a passport, uh, benefits, the works. Nowadays, it's not as uh, as easy and as uh, as, as 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 good as as it was, and mm. I think that message needs to go back. People need to recognise actually, you know, uh, times have changed, and also time has changed in your home country. Your home country needs you. You've got a degree now. You can add value to your country now. Mm. You know, start becoming entrepreneurs. Start putting pressure on the government to want to listen to you. Um, I'm not calling for a revolution <laughs> because you know there's been a lot of uh, bloodshed in some of these revolutions, but. You know, there's a there's a time for dialogue. I think, and I think the time for dialogue is now. I think you know, presidents, you know, uh, are, are great at doing what uh, their their job is to be done. But I think also they need to be better at listening to uh, the younger audience. Uh, and so you need to put your you need to shout louder mm. because often you know it is those who shout the loudest that get their stuff done. So I call on young people to really make their voices heard so those in power can take them seriously irrespective of where they are. Yeah, I definitely I'll, I definitely agree with that. And I'm one person who's definitely uh, passionate about the, <clears throat> the Africa argument. Uh, a lot of people, and I don't have the, the actual numbers, but a large group of people who often study abroad, so that also applies to me, right? But I do have intentions of going back to my home country, Kenya, to... Uh, obviously just uh, play my role as a citizen um, a lot of young people are led on by the false idea that again the West is the best it's the only route to success you know uh, your parents raised you so you could go to Harvard and you graduate with a with a first-class honors degree and then you somehow get a green card and that's the end like your life is set and your parents have done their work but again I think that obviously the argument as it stands um, it's kind of circular, right? If you keep sending people abroad, right, especially the most qualified, mm -hmm. then the country gets worse, oh, yes. right? And then eventually you're going to get more people who might accumulate some wealth in the country, send their kids to, to certain schools so that they're competitive in the international world for an educational place in a big university abroad. Then from there, they'll go abroad again. And, you know, what's going to happen? The country's just going to keep getting worse. Absolutely. Right? So... Um, I definitely, it's a huge issue, but uh, again, at the same time, on the flip side, we need to create incentives for Africans to go back and actually reshore, even the diaspora, to be able to have this sort of year of return that Ghana is doing. Yes. So what, what incentives do you think that, that, that are there? Like, for example, in Hargeisa, for someone to go back uh, to their home country yep. and actually uh, play their role as a citizen? Yep. I think we really need to show young people uh, and make it easier for them to gain employment. If you're a graduate now, mm. uh, graduated from uh, the universities in Somaliland, there should be easy access to jobs and opportunities. You know, there are people in the diaspora, myself included, who send money regularly to Somaliland to help uh, our families in, in all sorts of areas. But the biggest money <coughs> and remittance goes to, towards education. Uh, and so there are hundreds and thousands of Somalilanders, boys and girls graduated every year from various institutions across Somaliland in various different fields. Now, we've got an educated population now. We had a huge brain drain when a war took place. Uh, that now is being replaced by a, a, a population of graduates who now haven't got jobs. Mm. This is a serious problem. 
It was many of these graduates who haven't got jobs are the ones who are looking to then uh, to Europe uh, and America and the rest of the world then as, a, as, the, as the place they want to go to work. They can't go to these places. The only way they can get to these places is if they pay tens of thousands of pounds to these gangsters who will then make sure their lives are hell by taking them to Libya and then mm. through Italy. And they won't see the places which they are seeing on their social media. The Britons, mm. the Americans that they're seeing, they're thinking, wow, this is where I need to be. You know, So actually they can stay in their country. Like I said, they need to shout loud. They need to really put their, uh, you know, put pressure on the government to create, uh, you know, uh, whether it's whether it's graduate jobs, uh, whether they need to, you know, create whether there's possibility to create internships. Mm. You know, I think there's a real opportunity, uh, particularly because Somaliland is attracting a lot of investment at the moment. Mm. There's a lot of big boy organisations, big players coming to Somalia right now, and the government need to be able to say to these organisations, if you're coming to our city, if you're coming to our country. With the jobs that you create, uh, or the jobs that you need to make whatever it is possible, needs to come from our people. The, the problem at the moment we're facing is businesses are coming, and we're, mm. and we're attracting lovely businesses, and, and, and it's fantastic that we've got some international companies coming to Somaliland. But many of them are also bringing their own staff with them. Yeah. This defeats yeah. the object, especially if we've got our own uh, staff ready to our own workforce ready to take up the roles so i think there's a real opportunity there to engage with government uh, and, and and really put pressure and say look any inward investment needs to look at how need to need to have a plan on on staff development mm. retention training uh, of local uh, our local workforce particularly our local graduate workforce yeah no i think um uh, i i definitely see that point uh when it comes down to businesses there's two main things that I think are that that are made unattractive in terms of businesses, and I'll I'll leave this as Kenya because 2019 remained a very tough financial fiscal year, right? Um, for for anyone who was starting a business, and it was quite it was quite sad because a lot of people genuinely started businesses that were raking in money for the economy. Yeah. And what does the government do at the end of the year after taking a multitude of Chinese loans? and also loans, lots of loans from France, Britain as well, yep. we're kind of stuck now, mm. and our generation's paying for that. And this year, they just increased SME tax. And for those who don't know what SME stands for, it's small to medium enterprises, cool. right? Yeah. So SME taxes are now going up to 25%. So who in their right mind as an 18-year-old with an idea would want to start a business yeah. in a country where 25% of the net profit yearly is going to be taxed? Astonishing. No one is going to be. It's just it's it's counterintuitive because um, there's several research papers and I'll I'll try and get them for the listeners afterwards. Um, but one one of the ambassadors and the former, I think she was one of the chairs of the Foreign Affairs Committee in uh, in the U.S. Right? Um, she she did a lot of research on where where this growth in African countries comes from. Okay. And it's it's predominantly from SMEs. So okay. if you're if you're shooting yourself in the foot, it doesn't really make sense. It doesn't at all. You know? So we have to definitely have those incentives there and yeah. um, I guess uh, make it easier for, for people to actually Absolutely. start businesses. Yeah. And, and I'm sure there are countries in Africa, uh, whilst we're talking about the Africa context, which are doing things really well. Mm. And I think our African leaders really need to look at what's working well, which countries are doing things great, uh, which countries are really galvanizing their youth and making them uh, active and real contributors to society, uh, and and not be afraid of using those models. And yeah. I think that's the key. I think you know, and that, and that brings me on to, not to take away you know, <laughs> you asking the questions. That takes it, but that gives me uh, that that takes me on to what we're doing here as diaspora Somalilanders here in Wales to support uh, our country because we have diaspora links uh, with Somaliland, where the population here also actively. You know, got real good relations with our government, with our NGOs, and whatever it, whatever the support is needed, we rise to the challenge. Mm. Whether that is on he- general health, whether that is on mental health, whether that's on education, whether that is social care, where you know, there's not a month that goes by that there's not an appeal from Somaliland to the Cardiff Somaliland community for a, for something to be supported or for some sort of help or assistance towards whether it's a hospital. Whether it could be an individual, whether it's just, you know the problem in a village with le- with electrics, whether it's a, a water pump issue, you know mm. we're constantly being uh, inundated with requests to help, and we just you know 
see how much we can mobilize between us as a community to then be able to support uh, our our lenders back home. Yeah, I think that that link is definitely powerful. And uh, I guess now, in terms of just assessing the point of view of diasporan citizens in different countries or different continents, what would you say the state is like uh, in general for diasporan Africans in Wales at the moment? Just giving a general sort of estimation. Is it like the progress and stuff? Yeah, the progress. What are the opportunities like? Um, how the how's the the general level of education? Yep. Yep. So I would say uh, we're a very good place with uh, diaspora Africans in Cardiff, in terms of there is actually a network mm. called the South Saharan uh, Advisory Panel. Uh, I actually am a member of that. Uh, through our uh, Wales Somaliland links, and so in that uh, forum, you'll find various different communities that make up uh, the African community here in Cardiff. So you have Nigerians, you'll have Kenyans, you'll have Liberians, you'll have Somalis, you'll have Tanzanians, you have people from Sierra Leone. Mm. Uh, uh, you know all sorts of places honestly in Africa and it's fantastic when we all get together to um, share what we've been up to over the last year mm. or what we're up to at the moment and in fact there's been some collaborative work between some of the diaspora country to country stuff you know, east to south links, west to east, west west to north links. It's been fantastic the relationships that we've built up, uh, and so um, I would say, yeah, when we've come together, I've seen some doctors, some, some other health professionals, like nurses. Uh, I've seen some engineers. Um, you know, so I don't think there's a, a, a there's a number on it, and I think you're right. I think maybe there's an opportunity to explore um, uh, diaspora communities and their skills and qualifications. So we can be able to, you know, see how we can best utilize them, whether it's back home, uh, in their home country, uh, or neighboring countries, or here uh, in Wales and Cardiff. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a powerful, powerful statement of mm. Pan Africanism, and mm. I feel like even as an international student here, right, um, as long as I know that you're from Africa, <laughs> yes. you know, you just you get a fat smile on your face, you know, <laughs> uh, because you just feel that sort of connection, whether it's through the food. Well, that's through the culture and everything. And I mean, some of it might take away... Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to, like, uh, come from a different perspective in terms of the Pan-African argument, but uh, I think it's, it's a powerful thing. And um, at the same time, that Pan-Africanism can go towards an extreme. And there's controversial... There's been controversial talks, I think, ever since um, independence in general, right? Where you have some leaders that are saying that it should be mandatory. I'm not sure if it's in South Africa, right? I think if, you, if you're if you a doctor, then you have to go back and, or at least work in South Africa for two years yep. or at least have a mandatory service. So are you in favor of reforms back in the continent that would say that all diasporan or let's say um, people who have dual citizenship, they go back to the continent and work for let's say one or two years? What's your opinion on that? <laughs> Sorry, I got a bit of a cold for <coughs> just to let the listeners know. Apologies if you hear me sneezing or coughing. <coughs> this, uh, yeah, Storm's here is getting to me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, go back to Adnan's question. I think it's a very important question to ask. Uh, and in fact, my first encounter of this was back in primary school, uh, high school. And I remember I had an Iranian friend who uh, had to go back every summer with mm. his parents because his parents came here from Iran uh, they were they were studying uh, and, and the Iranian government uh, wanted them to to wanted the boys uh, particularly to do uh, military service mm. so in, in order to um, verify that they were students they had to go back every year and show their letters from the institutions that they were studying in. and that's what I found out wow there's actually, you know, there's this thing where you could actually have to go back. So some people are actually forced uh, to go back. But <clears throat> I'm definitely in favour of a voluntary scheme or a scheme where, you know, we we, we allow the process of uh, of, of diaspora, of qualified diaspora professionals to go back to their home country to be able to give back in their area of expertise. But I think they should be paid. I'll be honest with you, I think mm. they should be paid. Uh, you know, I don't think they, 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 they won't need accommodation because they've got family there themselves. Mm. Uh, and if they haven't got family, I'm sure you know the money they get, they get paid, they can use towards accommodation. But also, I think the payment should also come from the country 
which has which they call their their home now. So I think you know most countries in Europe, particularly, have a uh, a focus on developing and and have an age stream towards supporting Africa. And I think mm. it's an opportunity for the diaspora uh, people and organisations to challenge their adopted government to be able to say, look, we're the future of our country. We have expertise that we can offer our country. We've, we've worked in your country, the host country, for 10 years, 20 years, whatever. I want to now go back for a year, two years even, uh, and contribute to uh, developing my country, which you should also put aid towards. And I think by having those conversations, I can almost guarantee those countries would be like, you really want to go? It's a win-win scenario. Mm. It's a win-win scenario. You know, mm. like I said, most European countries are already given aid to Africa. So it's all about realigning that to say, actually, you know what? Wouldn't it be great if there was a program where you supported mm. me, a resident of your adopted country, to go back home, to be able mm. to train doctors, teachers, engineers, whatever it is, and then come back and report on it. So yeah, I think I, I'm all in favor of uh, you know anything that would help you know, really galvanise the diaspora into helping uh, their, 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 you know, their home country. Yeah, that's a brilliant idea. I think uh, when it comes to working with European nations to allow for at least there to be some incentive for our diaspora and Africans to come back, I think it's it's a great it's a great idea to have that sort of conversation. And absolutely, at the same time, if if European countries which are statistically financially stronger are yes. able to finance that, and so yes. like there are a majority of the countries, like they're a minority. Yeah. Uh, and now I'm going to move on to the second part of the podcast where we're going to uh, look at more or less um, the communities that are on this side of the globe, right? So just community uh, cohesion in general. So yeah. obviously, as as a diasporans, uh, there's definitely some sort of community. And um, as as the, the, some people might call them immigrant neighborhoods in quotes, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, but obviously, um, without stating any like, you know particular details, there are certain areas, whether it's in Europe, whether it's in the states, that are identified as you know immigrant neighborhoods, and uh, they are not known as usually like high income neighborhoods, right? So you obviously have the youth that might end up getting into situations where they get involved with drugs or they might get involved with excessive amount of alcohol, right? So how, as a community organizer, for example, over here, especially where there's a lot of knife crime, um, what steps have been taken uh, by any organizations that you know, or um, for that matter, any organizations that you're a part of, what steps have they taken to reduce things such as knife crime and youth delinquency in general? Yeah, uh, again, another <coughs> really important question and I think um, when we look at the local context uh, and some of the language that is used to describe these communities, uh, so you mentioned uh, immigrant communities, mm-hmm. uh, poverty communities. Mm. So some of the language that's used on a local level in terms of the professionals, uh, they call it areas of, uh, of low deprivation mm. or, or areas of multiple deprivation. So that's the poverty. When it comes to uh, migrant communities, these are areas which they often call uh, diverse or <laughs> multicultural communities. Mm. Uh, not necessarily using the word uh, migrant or immigrant, but you mm. know they kind of mean the same thing. But I think ultimately, if I'm if I'm honest with you, yes, more recently we've had our uh, fair share of an increase in uh, knife crime. Mm. Uh, and the associated issues with that. So you're talking drugs, substance misuse, uh, knife crime, violence. Uh, but I don't think it's a fair reflection of these communities. Mm. In these communities, there are young people, young adults, male and female, doing incredible things uh, to make a difference to society uh, and to their communities. We don't hear about these people. Mm. Uh, we're not going to really champion these people. There are role models that are running mm. boxing clubs, that are running sports activities, that are doing extracurricular homework and study clubs, all volunteers, all volunteering. And mm. we don't hear about these people. But the moment a young lad takes it upon himself to use a knife mm. or to cause havoc by drug dealing, it's in the press, it's in the news. Mm. Uh, that area then has a bad reputation. 
So I think on one hand, it's our fault as a community that we're not championed and raising awareness of those people who are doing great things because we have a, maybe we haven't got the right links, mm. but also like the right links with the media to really push the good things. But at the same time, those sort of things don't sell. The media mm. are not interested in those stories. Mm. It's not sexy enough. You know, mm. it's, it's not going to have the clickbait. You know, if I put a story now about a local football club that's engaging with 50 kids a week and they score maybe, you know, 70 goals between them, mm. it might not be as exciting as, like, you know, knife, uh, you know, a young lad stabs somebody with a knife uh, and, you know, uh, this area now has a section 60 order. You know, that would probably get more, uh, you know, be due to knife crime and that would probably get more likes and shares. So in mm. terms of clickbait, you know, uh, these stories which have to be told obviously because we want audiences to stay we want communities to stay safe and be aware of what's happening in the area but we need to also not overshadow that with the good stuff that are happening yeah. Uh, but yeah you know saying that still the asset like I said good things happen in the community you know the police in fact we have to give credit mm -hmm. where it's due they do work closely with the community and community leaders to tackle some of our biggest issues facing our communities and I think often that is the most important <coughs> thing. So long as there's a relationship there, there's an open dialogue there with the authorities, then you know you can see about getting things done, and you hear about firsthand uh, the the scale of the issues. I think the more you're excluded, and you're not around the table when decisions are being made. Mm then that's a problem because you don't know what's going on, you don't know why the police are on the streets, you don't know what, who stabbed who, or you know what's the tension that's gonna happen next. So I think it's very important that the police continue to engage with community leaders, gatekeepers, so they can get the community message across to the communities about what's happening and what's taking place. Um, and yeah, from, from then, there's been lots of activities, using sport particularly as a tool, to engage with uh, our our communities here in Cardiff, where we use a we got a cricket cohesion cup, mm. a football cohesion cup, uh, and the success of these two cups uh, has in Cardiff has now given the opportunity to Swansea and Newport neighbouring communities to also mm. give both a go as well. Wow. So now there's like you know there's a real legacy there of like how big and how far this competition is going. Yeah, I think I think sports can, it has the capacity to unite a lot of communities perhaps and um, it can be used as a very powerful tool again to change narratives Absolutely. because uh, I think again I'll just briefly talk about what the media can truly do um, in sociology there is a term I'm not sure what it is actually exactly yep. what it was coined as but uh, generally if, if media reports on knife crime in let's say a certain community right it causes the police to investigate that crime more because the, there's public outcry about it, people are scared, and then eventually they end up discovering more cases which get reported more by the media. Right, and this creates a, yeah, it's a vicious cycle. Uh, that's yeah. what it's called in psych, uh, sociology, right? And uh, that at the end, it starts to reflect badly, not just on communities, but obviously, as we've said, um, some of these stabbings have happened in migrant communities. Yeah. So they start reflecting badly on not just migrant communities but also here in Cardiff black communities yes right so what that gives people like UKIP and the Brexit party uh, for example ammunition. is ammunition and uh, quite frankly yeah. um, you know the 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 media although some may not really be uh, directly trying to get at that that is actually the power of the media is it becomes a political vehicle yeah. for people to start enacting legislation yeah. that is you know, subjugating a specific group of people, right? Yes. So you briefly talked about um, the amount of exposure that certain <sighs> communities have to uh, to political decision making. Yes. And do you think that the uh, the current state in in Cardiff especially, right? Uh, do you feel as if uh, there's been great satisfaction with the uh, the political involvement of minority communities such as uh, the BAME communities? Yeah. So I think. It's interesting because I think politics is one of those things which uh, really galvanizes communities, particularly around uh, the election time, because it's really exciting, it's in the news, uh, everyone's talking about it. And so one of the things we have done to really grab the interest of young people 
is um, bring your people into the mix to help uh, organize voter registration drives mm. because we recognize that actually this is going to be one of the most important elections uh, facing young people. There was a lot of uh, uh, implications of some of those policies that uh, depending on how you voted would impact a young person growing mm. up. So we got up to 10 to 15 young leaders, trained them up to be able to register people to vote uh, and we took to the streets of Cardiff and we registered thousands of people wow. who weren't registered originally to register to vote. Mm. We took that a step further. On the day of the election, those same 12 people came with me to go to the same houses and other properties to raise awareness of the, to register to vote. Mm. So we did a day of action, pre-registration, vote registration, and then we did a day of action on vote registration, on, voter, mm. on voting day. Uh, to make sure people came out of their houses uh, and went to the polls to vote. It was completely non-partisan. So we never told you people who to vote for or what to vote for. Mm. It was just, you know, well, this, is a, this is an important election. You should get involved. Uh, we trained them and they were really respectful and mm. never, never, you know, gave across their views to any of the residents that they spoke to uh, or the people that they spoke to. Uh, and yeah, it was, it was a real good experience to show the young people that hey, they're actually now stepping up to the plate. Yeah, I think it's wonderful to see young people leading change. And a lot of people underestimate the power of young people. Yes. But as we said, um, I think there was a 2011 World Bank survey, uh, which is very particular to Africa. It talks about the fact that the 60, over 60% of Africa's population is actually under the age of 35, okay. right? So um, when it comes to young people making change, I'd say to all the listeners that you can never take that for granted. Absolutely. Especially because of the, I mean, nowadays we, we basically have the whole world in our pockets, right? We can reach out to whoever, whenever, and make these connections. So definitely congratulations. And <laughs> yeah, it's good to see, um, you know, a group group of young people getting out to do something that might be seen as like boring, you yes. know, but it actually affects them in the yeah, long run. No, hundred yeah. percent. And you know, we did evaluation at the end, uh, both the day of action for the registration to vote and the day of action for the uh, go and do turnout to vote. Mm. And honestly, the young people's uh, excitement and uh, they felt they, they were actually involved in the process. They felt like they had um, an influence mm. in making sure <laughs> you know more people. One, one registered to vote and two turned out to vote mm-hmm. so you know they, we, I'm sure we'll reconnect with them again in future elections but yeah it was just very powerful to see them you know all of a sudden be more politically active mm-hmm. uh, during our session in, like we did an hour of prepping and it was some really good questions about you know so who's my party why should I vote for them mm-hmm. are they any good so really showing them you know how you can select uh, something to vote for yeah, 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 definitely. And I guess um, as we're coming to the close uh, of the podcast, uh, I just want to briefly touch again on um, are there any sort of youth forums or any other ways that the youth can get in touch with government? Because a lot of people just see it as, oh, it's something that, you know, it's for my mom and my dad to do. But, um, there's that. And then the yep. second question, um, b- before we start to actually, um, yeah, just 10 minutes. <laughs> Uh, sorry, uh, sorry about that, guys. Just we have a we have booked a room and everything, and uh, you know it's just a bit complicated. But uh, we'll get back to the questions before we sign off. Um, the last two questions. So, what other ways can the youth get involved with uh, with the government? And yeah. also, the second one <clears throat> is what incentives do we provide the youth, regardless of which community they come from, to be able to participate in these community building uh, programs? Yeah, so another two brilliant questions to end up end off with uh, Adnan, and I would say number one, how can I get involved in uh, continuing to uh, engage with the political process? I would say, look, depending on how old you are, uh, if you're in school, join your school council. If you're in, again, uh, that's in high school, in primary school, you have school councils. When you move into college, again, you have school councils. By the time you get to university, there's a student union, and you can become the president. You can become mm-hmm. the president of your student union and your university. If you don't fancy that, you can become uh, an officer in various different uh, hats, okay? So there's always ways which you can 
uh, become a leader politically in that sense. Uh, you can uh, also look for your a society that resonates with you, either from your community or, or a society uh, about health, fitness, uh, education, particularly. It's completely up to you. But then if you want to do stuff outside of school, and you think, you know what, nah, I don't want to do nothing inside of school, or you're already doing stuff in school, in college, university, but you fancy doing more, well, that's when I can come in. You know, the work we do with Citizens Wales and community organising, you know, pay us, pay us a visit. Come to our action centre in Butown, come and have a conversation with us, follow us on social media, find out about the actions we're doing. We've got some great actions taking place at the moment. Uh, the one action that I'm really passionate about at the moment is around challenging uh, local employers to recruit local people uh, and by also uh, taking advantage of and sign up to our, our Community Jobs Compact, which is all about um, eradicating poverty, uh, and fighting for diversity and inclusion in terms of uh, sign up to pay, pay the real living wage, uh, tackling name brand address brand applications, uh, training staff uh, on unconscious bias training. Uh, so all of those things were really uh, pushing for uh, organisations to sign up to. We've had some really good response uh, on that. But also, I also lead on the National BAME uh, Youth Forum, which is a national forum where young people from across Wales come together uh, three to four times a year to discuss and explore the biggest issues facing them. Uh, and then what we do is, in smaller groups, is take those issues and take it to the people who will make it, who who be able to make it better. We've got a forum coming up. Uh, uh, our next meeting is in February half term. Uh, on the 19th, it's a Wednesday. I'd love to, for Adnan to turn up and be there. Uh, I'm going to invite you personally. Uh, hopefully we'll have our Lord Mayor of Cardiff, who's black, uh, who's really interested in also in finding out and connecting with our forum. Uh, he'll be there. But also there'll be like-minded young people from across Cardiff and South Wales uh, attending. Thank you. So, Thank you so, much. so they're the sort of things that we've got going on. I'd like to see, yeah, you know, anything you guys need, you know, Adnan can hook you up my details. Please keep in touch. Yeah. I'd love to hear from you more. Yeah, thank you again so much. Um, congratulations for everything that you've been able to do for the community. I'm sure thank there's you. a lot of progress that's been generated from that both here and in Somaliland. So again, thank you for inspiring people to... Um, oh, Ashraf is saying that he was going to be there too. Um, <laughs> yeah, so... Excellent. I'll Look forward to seeing you, Ashraf. I'll send you the details. <laughs> yeah, we'll get in touch with you guys soon. But thank you again so much for tuning in. Um, again, next week, we're going to try and get uh, someone who's starting his own CBD oils business. But I'll reach out to you depending on if anything changes. Uh, thank you so much, guys, for tuning in. And without further ado, have a wonderful afternoon.